Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Ve sallallahu ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Kur'an müftahaleyne bi hikmetek ve şur aleyne bi rahmetek ya da celali ve ekram ya alimu. Alimna min ilmike ma tarda bihi anna ve la tuakhidna bima ta'lamuhu minna. Ya halimu khaliqna bi khuliqin ilm ve haqiqna bi haqaqin ilm. Subhaneke la ilmen ana illa ma alemtena inneke entin alimun hakim. Sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. We're on number 130 in the hikam or spiritual aphorisms of Sayyidina Shaykh ibn Ata'ala secondary rahimahullahu ta'ala wa afanallahu ya'amu bi'ulumihi fi darin. Ameen. In this hikmah he says the following. لو أنك لا تصل إليه إلا بعد فناء مساويك ومحو دعاويك لم تصل إليه أبدا ولكن إذا أراد أن يوصلك إليه ستر وصفك بوصفه وغطى نعتك بنعته فوصلك إليه بما منه إليك لا بما منك إليه okay, So he says رضي الله تعالى عنه ونفر الله إياه بعلمه في الدارين آمين um, if you were to be united with him only after the extinction of your vices and the effacement of your pretensions, you would never be united with him. Instead, when he wants to unite you to himself, he covers your attribute with his attribute and hides your quality with his quality. And thus he unites you to himself by virtue of what comes from him to you not by virtue of what goes from you to him. So throughout the hikam, one of the things that we've seen is, uh, as we said in the beginning, that really um, the practice of spirituality, Islamic spirituality, or however you want to term it, tazkiyah, tasawwuf, whatever, the practice of it is the, in some senses, practical side and practical consequence of the belief in God. So, I believe in God. I believe that God is one. I believe that God is powerful. I believe, I believe, I believe. And to put that into practice and let that become part of the flesh and blood of who I am, then that's really the effort of spirituality is to actualize the Tawheed and so over and over again in the Hikam we have this theme of recognizing that what's more important than what I put forward for Allah what's more important than that is what He's giving me and what's more important than focusing on myself is focusing on Him and so what He's um, getting at here is that yeah we put the effort in to work towards rectifying our shortcomings we put the effort in in terms of trying to um, not make claims the effacement of your pretensions could also be the effacement of your claims you know we try to not make claims we try not to have these pretensions and yet even though we try those things, we recognize that we're going to have those things. Like we're going to be working toward working. That's a that's a lifelong process in a sense. And so, if if the whole thing about our relationship with Allah and and coming close to Allah was completely predicated upon our success in those areas, then we would never actually reach Him. But rather, uh, if when he wants us to reach him, and this is why the adab is so important, that the, the manners that we have with Allah are more important than the deeds that we put forward. And so, so he says that if, if he, when he wants, to, um, wants you to be united with him or wants you to reach to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we've made already this comment around Wahdatun Wujud and what it means to be united with him, and it doesn't mean to be obviously physically united with him, because they say Kamithli he shaykh, but rather it means to be close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then what he does then is that he 
conceals your or my uh, quality or attribute with his quality and attributes. And so our shortcomings then are concealed over by the infinitude of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And فَوَصَلَكَ إِلَيْهِ بِمَا مِنْهُ إِلَيْكَ لَا بِمَا مِنْكَ إِلَيْكَ So he brings you to him not by what you put forward to him but rather by what he put for, puts forward to you. And this is why people, the people of knowledge will always talk about this idea of exp, uh, availing oneself to the mercy of Allah. You know, that like in the mercy of Allah descends and it, it comes in breezes upon the creation. And I want to avail myself to that mercy. And part of my availing myself to that mercy is putting in the effort that I need to put in. But recognizing that it's not the effort that's actually going to the issue. You know, it's very, it's kind of similar, I guess, in a way to the whole issue of deeds and Allah's mercy and the hadith of the Prophet them, where he said that no one let. Uh, or something along those lines that no one's deeds will be what enters them into paradise but rather it will be the mercy of God that envelops them so yeah we have the that doesn't mean we just give up on the deeds and we're like oh great we're going to just wait for the mercy of God but you know we we don't give up on our deeds but we also recognize that um that as we put forth those deeds, it is truly the mercy of God that is the deciding factor. And in, in some way this is similar, that we put forth our deeds and we try to get closer to Allah and we try to rectify ourselves and improve ourselves and so on. Um, but in the end, it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says in the commentary, Shaykh Abdul Majid, rahimahullah ta'ala wa nafanullahu He says, uh, he quotes, وَلَوْ كُنْتَ أَصْدَقَ الصَّادِقِينَ uh, no, I'm sorry, that's the end of another sentence Because he says that um, <coughs> Basically, if you think about yourself You're going to realize that even the good things that you have They're um, They're mixed with with shortcomings And even the feeling of being sincere Is a claim towards sincerity And claims are a problem so, you know, we, sh we try for sincerity, but we don't claim that we've achieved it, um, you know, unless we're like narcissists or something. And, and then he quotes this verse, وَلَوْلَا فَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ مَا زَكَى مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ أَبَدًا So as if it wasn't for the, ben the, the, ver the, the blessing of God and the bounty of God upon you and His mercy, not a single one of you would have become purified. So this verse is very explicit, you know. Any level of rectification that the person has, it's fadl from Allah. It's a mercy and blessing from Allah, bounty from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَلِذَا قَالَ أَبُوْ الْعَبَاسُ الْمُرْسِي رَحِمُهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى وَلِذَا قَالَ أَبُوْ الْعَبَاسُ الْمُرْسِي رَحِمُهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى لَنْ يَصِلَ الْوَلِيُّ إِلَى اللَّهِ تَعَالَى حتى تنقطع عنه شهوة شهوة الوصول إلى الله تعالى يعني انقطاع أدب لانقطاع ملل. So he says Abu Abbas al-Mursi rahimahullah who again is the Sheikh of Ibn Ata'ala. So this is his Sheikh. He's quoting his Sheikh. He says his Sheikh in Tarbiyah. Um, you know, generally speaking, they'll distinguish between the Sheikh of Ta'lim and the Sheikh of Tarbiyah. They're not always the same person. And they're not always that one necessarily is the other one. Sheikh of Ta'lim is the Sheikh of Instruction. And the Sheikh of Tarbiyah is the Sheikh that helps the person to rectify themselves internally. Generally speaking, a Sheikh of Tarbiyah will also be a Sheikh of Ta'lim. But a Sheikh of Ta'lim is not necessarily a Sheikh of Tarbiyah. Um, actually, oftentimes they're not. It's more of a specialized category. So Abu Abbas al-Mursi rahimahullah is the Shaykh of Tarbiyah of Ibn Atta'ullah secondary rahimahullah. So he said, the wali, the saint or the righteous person, 
does not reach to God until their desire to reach to God is um, is abandoned. We'll use abandoned. Um, and meaning by that, the abandonment in terms of adab, not the abandonment in terms of boredom. So what this means is the person does not truly reach God until they are no longer seeking to reach God. And not because they got bored of trying, but because they realize that in order to reach God, our intention with God has to not be about that. It has to just be that he's God. And in, when that's the case, then the person can actually attain this level of saintlyhood or saint, uh, sainthood or whatever. Um, wilaya. He can become, he or she can become a wili. Um, then he says at the end of it, وَصَاحِبُ هَذَا الْمَقَامُ لَا تَكُونُ لَهُ إِرَادَةٌ مَعَ مَوْلَاهُ the person of this station, they have no desire, they have no want from their Lord because they only reached to their Lord from their Lord. And that is the blessing of God that He gives to whom He wills. And Allah is the one with a uh, magnificent blessing and bounty. So this is 130. 131 he says Lola Jamilu Sitrihi Lam Yakun Amanun Ahalan Lim Kabul Lam Yakun Amanuhu Lam Yakun Amanun Ahalan Lim Kabul. If it were not uh, were it not for the kindliness of his veiling, no deed would be worthy of acceptance. Were it not for the kindliness of his veiling, no deed would be worthy of acceptance. So his satr, his satr or his sitr, in mine it has sitr, in that one has satr. I know there's two different ways in the Arabic language to say that, I'm not sure. There's probably some small um, small yet meaningful difference between the two, but I don't know what it is. But um, it says that, جَمِينُ سِتْرِهِ لَمْ يَكُنْ So sitr is Allah's concealment or His veiling. So it's kind of like, when someone comes up to you and they, they tell you something really nice that they think about you and you think to yourself like, wow, I don't know how they didn't see the things that like I know, you know, I thought, I thought, you know, people say, well, you're so, you're so, you're so patient and you think you're thinking to yourself like, wow, I'm really impatient. I don't know how Allah veiled that one from them. That's sitr. That's a, that's a concealment or a veil that Allah puts. And it says, if it were not for the beauty of his veiling, or the kindliness of his veiling, his concealment, there wouldn't be any deed actually that's acceptable, worthy of acceptance in reality. Um, I have in my, in my notes here on the side, it says real talk. So I'm interested now to see, even though I read this, I think this morning, I still don't remember what it was exactly. <laughs> so he says, فَإِنَّ الْعَبْدَ مُبْتَلَى بِنَظْرِهِ إِلَى نَفْسِهِ وَفَرَحِهِ بِعَمِلِهِ مِنْ حَيْثُ نِسْبَتُهُ إِلَيْهِ وَشُهُورُ حَوْلِهِ وَقُوَّتِهِ عَلَيْهِ وَهَذَا مِنَ الشِّرْكِ الْخَفِيِّ الْقَادِحِ فِي الْإِخْلَاصِ فَيَنْبْغِي لِلْمُرِيدِ أَنْ يَعْتَمِدَ عَلَى فَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَكَرِمِهِ لَا عَلَى اجْتِهَادِهِ وَعَمِلِهِ So he says that the servant is tried and tested with looking at themselves. The servant is tried with, tested by looking at themselves. And they're so happy and they're so joyous about their own deeds. And they're attributing their own deeds to themselves. And the witnessing of their might. And the witnessing of their capacity and their capability. And this is all in reality a slight and subtle associating of partners with Allah. That takes away from the person's sincerity. Because they're supposed to recognize that there's actually no power or might except with Allah. But I, as a servant, I love to see my own power. And I love to see my own might. And I love to attribute my deeds to myself. And I love to think that I'm so capable and I'm so able and I'm so, I can do all of these things. And look at me, I'm so wonderful and so on and so forth. Uh, not from a perspective of Allah is so great and I'm honoring what, 
that Allah has made me a human being, but from the perspective of I'm so great. And all of that is a problem. So he's saying that this the servant, the reason why if it weren't for the kindliness of his veiling, no deed would be accepted because the servant can't avoid this. We're just always looking at ourselves. And then and then and then we wonder like where all of the anxiety comes from. You know, not to say that people shouldn't get, you know, get your professional help. There's no problem with that. But there's things that um, induce anxiety. There's things that induce um, a kind of hopelessness, you know. And so to recognize that we're, we're tied with this. We're tied with always seeing ourselves. 132 So he says that you are more in need of his forbearance and mercy and kindness, Allah's. You are more in need of those things when you are obedient to him than when you are disobedient to him. You're more in need of those things when you're obedient to him than when you are disobedient to him. Okay, so we've come across this theme before, this idea that um, sometimes the act of disobedience can actually be better and safer than the act of obedience, because arrogance is a huge problem, and uh, self-righteousness is a huge problem, and this is of course something that we see very commonly amongst the so-called religious, right? It's one of the things that oftentimes pushes people away from engaging with the so-called religious, is they just seem so self-indulged and so interested in themselves and so proud of themselves and so self-righteous and arrogant and judgmental and everything else you know because mashallah they were able to do x y or z well you know maybe that person who wasn't able to do x y or z but they were hum they were humble about what they were able to do maybe they're in a better situation than the person who was able to do those things so i say you're more in need of his forbearance when you obey him than when you are when than when you disobey him because, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's when we do the act of obedience that we start thinking that we're special. And inevitably, like the one before it said, the deeds that we're putting forth that we think that we're so special for, inevitably, they're, they're, they're incomplete too. And so, I really need his hilm. I need his forbearance. Glorified and exalted is he. But when I do an act of disobedience, and there's a level of humility and need that comes with that, um, that that's important in my relationship with God, the recognition of that need. So he says that, in, in summary, that, <coughs> and this is an added... And this is an added warning about the problem of feeling entitled to reach God through one's deeds. There's an entitlement to that. Entitlement is a really important concept. It's a really important concept in our regular practical everyday life. And it's a really important concept in our spiritual life. Is that I'm not really entitled to things. You know, Yes, there are ways that things should go. Um, I can address system, systemic issues. I can um, focus on problems that need resolution and so on and so forth. But in many, many things in life, I'm not really, uh, I, there's just an entitlement to it. And especially somehow, and I don't know, I feel like it's actually worse. But, you know, you never know how your memory works. Entitlement's a really big thing with young people. You know, like you'll see them... And, and part of it, I think, is our fault because we do this whole um, we do this whole leadership industry thing, you know, and we don't consider what that concept really has to do with anything that we actually believe, you know. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Dr. Timothy Winter, I was listening to a lecture recently by him on Imam Shamil. Some of you may know about Imam Shamil from the Caucasus region, from modern day Dagestan, and um, you know, who led this um, 
fight against the Russian invaders of the Caucasus. He was the Sheikh of the Naqshbandis and he was the head of the Mujahideen. And he, 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 one of the famous stories about him, for example, is that in the siege that he was, um, many of his colleagues were killed in, a number of soldiers, and this is told by the Russians, a number of soldiers surrounded him and he was, or came to surround him and he was just watching them still. And when they came closer, he leapt over them and killed three of them and then was struck with the bayonet and he grabbed the bayonet and removed it from himself and killed that fourth person and then looked at the rest of them, jumped over a wall and took off and disappeared into the higher mountains because it's all mountain region, right? Disappeared into the higher mountains and nursed his wounds and stuff and then continued to fight them for another 30 years. <laughs> These people were <laughs> they're really tough people, you know? And uh, so, um, so doctor, uh, there's a lecture, Imam Shamil, you can look it up on YouTube, Imam Shamil or SoundCloud and uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim uh, from the Cambridge Muslim College. And one it's, it's the first in a series of lectures that he's giving on paragons of leadership, I think it's called. And uh, he starts off, actually most of the lecture is him talking about this idea of leadership. You know, like, what does that actually mean to us? And why are we part of this industry? And it's always kind of rubbed me funny because I never really... I don't know, like I never really, I guess, lived in that world in a sense. Like I, I became a Muslim and I just got, like I erased everything in my world except for what it was that I was studying about Islam. And then I went overseas. So I didn't, and then I came back and everyone's talking about like, we need to teach the youth leadership and we need to make the youth leaders and we need leaders out of the youth and all of this stuff. And I just, I couldn't understand it. I'm like, what are you saying? They don't need to be leaders, they're youth. They need to go put flyers up. And they need to sweep the floor and they need to put away chairs and tables and they need to be patient and they need people to tell them what what you know tell them about their experiences and listen to them and spend time with them and they need to talk to their elders and stuff like it's totally foreign kind of like thing to me but you know the more you deal in the muslim community the more you realize that that's like a really common thread you need to make leaders out of them so it's it's why it's not surprising then when you see these huge levels of entitlement because people have been told that they're leaders and really actually they haven't done anything you know so so um, a similar thing happens sometimes with religious leadership you know people will go and study and they think that they they have actually no real experience other than reading some books and now they're going to come back and lead a community and you haven't really like you you don't have any entitlement to that you haven't proven yourself you haven't you haven't put in the work, um, and those are all issues, you know. But sometimes we're this is the tarbiyah that we're giving people. Oftentimes, is the tarbiyah of creating these problems in them. So, um, you know, uh, entitlement is a, is an issue. Okay, so I'll stop my rant right now. Um, but he says that this. This is a warning of our entitlement in the world is one issue, but even worse is our entitlement with Allah. And and we do hear that a lot, right? Like I did what I was supposed to do, and I, I kept asking Allah, and Allah never gave it to me. This is a profound, this betrays a profound misunderstanding of who God is. You know, God is not Santa Claus. You don't get on the good list and, and, and you get whatever you want and you wake up in the morning and like get your present and it's wrapped under the tree. <laughs> We've talked about this before. It's just, it's crazy when you think about it. Like God is not some divine Santa Claus, you know. We have to be careful what we tell ourselves. Salam Sheikh question. I often hear people say that is your right, but I'm not sure if that's always true. And so I struggle with understanding the difference between your own rights within interpersonal relationships or various relationships and entitlements. It's a good question. Uh, or it's not really... The question's not really stated, but it's, inshallah, implied. Um... 
I've begun recently studying with a, a particular sheikh who's like really, really particular about how questions are asked. And if he doesn't like the way that the question is asked, he just won't ask. He won't answer it. And it's not because he's trying to be a jerk. It's because he's trying to get the people to really focus on how they think. Um, but I think this is very. It's clear. I'm not picking on you, Busha. Um, So, uh, so one thing about rights is that generally the discourse of the modern West is the discourse of rights rather than a discourse of responsibilities. Correct? So it will often talk about this is, my, this is your right and this is your right and this is your right and what one's responsibilities are is oftentimes less articulated. In contrast to that, generally speaking, and in contrast to that, generally speaking, the body of religious teachings that we have are often focused on one's responsibilities, their duties, their wajib, right? Their wajib. What is it that they should be doing? Uh, more so than their rights. And so there's oftentimes a level of strictness that is emphasized in dealing with one's responsibilities and a level of forgiveness or forbearance that's exercised in relationship to one's rights and oftentimes this is really important for relationships by the way and again part of this is that we do have individual things in um in Islam, of course, but Islam also has a very heavy focus on the social, on the communal, whereas, of course, the it's it's the opposite in the modern Western paradigm. So, in order for social stuff to last and sustain, oftentimes the focus needs to be more on one's own responsibilities and a level of forgiveness in regards to one's rights. Part of why that's important is because we are often more forgiving with ourselves than we are with others. So, if I'm going to if I'm just going to leave it the way that it would normally be, I'm going to be very forgiving with myself, which is going to probably relate to other people's rights. But when it comes to what I demand on my own behalf from others, I'm going to be very strict. I'm going to hold others to a standard that I oftentimes don't even hold myself to. And that's obviously going to be problematic for relationships, for families, for communities, for everything. That being said, we know our rights and our responsibilities by the teachings of the Sharia. So, um, if someone says that is your right, then the assumption... And all of these are heavy philosophical questions, right? Like, I, I don't think that oftentimes we really consider the philosophical underpinnings of the things that we often say or the things that we often think or the conclusions that we sometimes come to, right? So, if, if I'm... S weighing a situation I'm saying well that's your right well who said that's my right like th that I, I should have some sort of evidence for that right Wh what gives me the impression that that's my right and oftentimes it's true like we we tend to know these things what but we it's just worth thinking about so if something is my right it's probably it's very 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 likely there might be an exception I don't know doesn't seem likely but oftentimes Blanket statements are wrong, but um, our rights are laid out for us in the Sharia. What I have an actual right to, you know, and that's what it is. This and the Sira helps with that. The Sunnah helps with that, and so on. Um, so it's going to depend on the situation. Entitlement would be kind of like. Thinking I'm thinking I have a right to something that I really don't have a right to. You know, uh, thinking that I have a right to something that I don't really have a right to. That's I, I have a sense of entitlement to it. So in the case with Allah, I, I worship Allah. I don't have. I'm not entitled to anything. He has the right upon me. I don't have a right upon him. He's God. I have a responsibility towards him. I don't have a right upon him. 
anything that he gives me is from his generosity and his mercy and his his fadl, his bounty. I hope that's clear at some level. If it's not, feel free to ask a follow-up question. Um, another comment, subhanAllah, I was thinking about this the other day. I wonder if part of that entitlement, even approaching arrogance of expecting Allah's good graces, comes partly from a place of anxiety. That if I do these things, Allah will not leave me, He will favor me in whatever trial, etc. Yeah, I could see that. Um, and I think one of the things, one of the themes that we've come across before is the consequence of parenting upon our overall psyche and especially on our relationship with God. The, there are really profound consequences. So sometimes the messaging that we get from our parents is essentially that um, we don't know if they'll be there for us. We don't know how they're going to react to different things, so on and so forth. And then we start to transpose those understandings onto our relationship with God. And that's why anyone who's really serious about their relationship with God must always begin with understanding who God is. This is the absolute foundational issue. I have to study Aqidah. I have to know who God is and who God is not, what we do not say about God. And, and I must know the names of Allah, the attributes of Allah. And reading the Qur'an, of course, reminds us of that. That's one of the great benefits of the Qur'an, is that it's a constant reminder of who God is. And so it readjusts those things for us because we forget. We tend to, to lapse. Um, and we fall into our anxieties. We fall into our insecurities. But then we read and we hear what God himself says about himself and about his relationship with his servants. And that to us should be some level of affirmation. So, and, and part of this also again in the parenting thing is that Oftentimes parents will do the whole Santa Claus thing with God and then weaponize, you know, weaponize various aspects of Islam. So, you know, that's why you didn't get that thing that you wanted from Allah because you didn't listen to me. I mean, think about how wrong that is. If you just stop for a few seconds and think about like how wrong that is. I think I think it was last week that we talked about this idea of a ta'allu, the playing God, like pretending that we're God. That's why you didn't get this thing because you didn't listen to me. I told you to do it this way and Allah knew that you didn't do it that way and He didn't do it the... So, I, who are you to say that? And then, and then that starts to affect how we look at God, right? So then we're always in this anxiety about... Well, is he mad at me? Is he punishing me? Is he not giving me what I asked for because he's punishing me? Because he hates me? Because he dislikes me? Because of this, 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 this? And it's like, no, 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 just slow down. Just slow down. Like, you're a believer. You worship God. You pray. You give your charity. You make mistakes and you turn back to him. He loves you. It's okay. He's not going to abandon you. He didn't abandon you and he's not angry with you. It's not like everything else. You know, it's not like all of these relationships with unstable people. Allah is the stable, He's permanent. So, uh, you know, all of these are things we have to continuously go through some level of internal rectification. How do you see entitlement fostered in childhood, specifically in Islamic schools, if you have examples? Mm. I don't know. Uh, nothing's coming to mind, like, really quickly. I think I said one of them recently. I think one of the weeks recently I said this thing about how when people tell you that, um, I, you know, I just think that a lot of our discourse and a lot of the way that we talk about things and we think about things is just straight up dunya. Like it's not, it's just straight up worldliness and it's not Allah centric. And, you know, like the idea that I had mentioned in the recent past about 
telling people you can you can be whatever you want to be you can do whatever you want to do it's like no you can't if you tell someone their whole life you can do whatever you want to do um, they're going to feel entitled that they can do whatever they want to do and if they weren't able to do it then it was someone else's fault and their self-responsibility is gone and like all of these other issues I mean it's uh, just wild you know may Allah help us Like sometimes we tell these tell kids like, you know, just practice hard, work hard. You can play in the NBA. It's like okay. I mean, look, I grew up playing basketball in the greater Los Angeles area, and some of the literally some of the best traveling teams in the entire country we played with in middle school, and. I knew by the age of like 10 or 11 that I was not going to the NBA, even though I was the best basketball player in in school all the time. So it wasn't, and I knew I'm not going to the NBA because like, you know, we're playing against seventh graders that are dunking on us. Like, I think things are pretty clear at this point. Um, so, you know, just sometimes we exaggerate things. I think the truth is really important. And maybe I'm a little bit harsh on that sometimes, but I think the truth is important. Um. Thank you. Um. Right. Enough of that. Alhamdulillah. Nice to see people's comments, though. It's actually, I think we have more people than we've had in the recent past tonight which is nice it's good to see some of your names again um, so 133 <laughs> عند الخلق والخاصة يطلبون من الله السطر عنها خشية سقوطهم من نظر الملك الحق. This is really beautiful. Veiling is of two kinds. So, you know, again with the translations, uh, if you have this or if you're taking notes or something, try to. Um, focus on the Arabic sometimes Especially on the particular words That I might spend some time clarifying <sighs> Because if I'm not m mistaken here I think that the word veiling Gets used as a translation for various terms So in this case We're talking about the term sitr or satr And in other cases We might be talking about the idea of hijab Or mahjub And both of them are a type of veiling but there are different kinds of veiling. Um, so what we're talking about here is not a veiling. Sometimes, oftentimes, when we say that someone is mahjub or bainahu or bainallahi hijab, that between them and Allah, there's a hijab. There's a there's a veiling or a barrier, and this is a barrier that blocks. It's a very negative, right? But a sitr in this case, sitr is oftentimes actually very positive. So what we're talking about here is a veiling of two kinds. Veiling of disobedience and veiling in it. So let me explain it first. So what is the, what is the concept? The concept is, what kind of veiling can happen? What kind of sitr can happen? A sitr can happen wherein, um, I won't say I because Allah yastur alayna. Allah give us sitr. Individual X commits a particular sin. And Allah keeps that hidden and does not expose it to the people. So this is a sitr. He's a mastur or she's mastura. That they're, um, they've, that's been hidden from the people. That's a veiling. The other type of veiling is the veiling that comes between the person and the sin before they actually do the sin, not after they do it. So, for example, 
I heard about one sheikh one time that he was talking about this idea of um, the relationship between this is a very sensitive topic so I'm going to try to uh, let's just see the relationship between the sheikh and his in this case his female students so uh, part of the way that you know Allah has created us male and female to be attracted to in, in, in the majority of circumstances to be attracted to the opposite gender and so when you have a sheikh and you have female students there's a closeness in that relationship that has to be dealt with with a lot of care and a lot of observance of the sharia and um, vigilance in a sense and one of the things that one sheikh was saying one time is that the issue is not as much whether or not you know the issue is 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 less the I hope I can say this right and I'm not misattributing it and don't take it word for word but try to understand the concept of, of what I'm getting at is that the issue is not as much the hijab that the woman is wearing as it is the belief and the hope from the shaykh that Allah will put some sort of hijab between him and her so it's not about her hijab it's about his hijab that doesn't mean that you know she shouldn't dress appropriately or whatever but it's just a recognition that like this is a type of sitr right that would be a type of sitr that Allah would put rather than putting it rather than the person makes the mistake and Allah veils that mistake from the people Allah veils between the person and the mistake before the mistake can even occur. So, you know, He prevents, Allah prevents a certain type of attraction. Allah prevents a certain type of inclination, a certain type of desire, a certain temptation. Not just uh, sexual, but it can be other things as well, you know. It could be financial, it could be power based, whatever it might be. It might be that a person sees something and they're like, wow, I really want that, you know. And then all of a sudden that starts to really affect everything that they're doing because they want that thing, whatever it might be. But Allah puts a veil, but the idea here is that there's a difference between the two, okay? I think I'm belaboring it too much. And we're only on 133, and I was hoping to go through 20. And we've gone through 3. Alhamdulillah. Common people seek... Uh, veiling in disobedience out of the fear of falling in rank among mankind and the elect seek veiling of disobedience out of the fear of falling from the sight of God the true king so you know the general generality of people they worry about the sitr that happens afterwards because if it did not occur then they would fall in the eyes of the people but the people who are elect they're closer in their relationship with Allah. They're worried about the sitr that happens before the mistake because if because that will protect them in the eyes of Allah. So again, their their tawheed is in a different place. so this is that they um, they they seek that veil, a barrier between them and the sin. And ila هذا المعنى أشار أبو الحسن الشاذلي رضي الله تعالى عنه. So Abu Hassan al-Shadili is the Sheikh of Abu Abbas al-Mursi. So we said that Ibn Ata'ala is the student of Abu al-Abbas al-Mursi and Abu al-Abbas al-Mursi is the student of Abu al-Hassan al-Shadili. وَإِذَا هَذَا الْمَعْنَى أَشَارَ أَبُ الْحَسَنَ الشَّاذِلِ فِي دُعَائِهِ بِقَوْلِهِ اللَّهُمَّ إِنَّا نَسْأَلُكَ التَّوْبَةَ وَدَوَامَهَا وَنَعُوذُ بِكَ مِنَ الْمَعْصِيَةِ وَأَسْبَابِهَا وَذَكِّرْنَا بِنْ خَوْفِ مِنْكَ قَبْلَ هُجُومِ خَطَرَاتِهَا وَحْمِلْنَا عَلَى النَّجَاتِ مِنْهَا وَمِنَ التَّفَكُّرِ فِي طَرَائِقِهَا so he says in one of the du'as of Abu al-Hasan al-Shadini radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa anda 
He said, O oh Allah, we ask you tawbah and its continuing, its continuousness, its continuity. We ask you that we turn towards you and that we turn towards you constantly. And we seek refuge in you from sin and the things that lead to it. From sin and the things that lead to it. Remind us with fear of you before our thoughts overcome us and take us towards those sins. And carry us to deliverance from uh, our, our thoughts and our, uh, and our sins and so on by reflecting from the sins and carry us towards deliverance from the sins through reflection upon those things that lead to them. So what is he saying? Not only the thing itself, but that which leads to it. So it's focusing on actually what comes the step before. <coughs> okay. 134. So I'll probably go quickly on this one, even though, of course, in all of them there's a lot that can be said. Uh, whoever honors you honors you only honors only the beauty of his veil in you. Therefore, praises to the one who veiled you, not to the one who honored and thanked you. So if a person is honoring you, then they're honoring you because of the veil that Allah put between them and the things that are not um, praiseworthy about you. So the one who we should be thankful to is the one who veiled those things, not the one who actually uh, honored us and thanked us. وَمَا بِكُمْ مِنْ نِعْمَةٍ فَمِنَ اللَّهِ Allah says in the Qur'an, and whatever blessing that you have, it's from Allah. Surah An-Nahl, verse 53. Number 135 No one is a true sahib of yours No one is a true companion or friend of yours Except the one who while knowing your defects is your companion, and that is only your generous master. The best one to have as a friend is he who does not seek you out. Uh, seek, I, I, the end of my screen is, let me make this smaller. Uh, seek you out, seek you out of the sake of something coming from you to him. I'll just guess, you guys can see it, you already know. So no one is a true friend of yours, no one's a true sahib of yours, except the one who keeps your company while knowing the de knowing your defects. It's a really interesting concept, right? It's not necessarily that you need to go and like, actually it's not, I shouldn't say it's not necessarily, it's not the case that you need to go and confess your sins to them or tell them all of your faults and so on and so forth. But truly like a, re a true real relationship is a relationship that goes beyond the perfection, right? And that's definitely what happens in a marriage, right? Like when you're married to someone and, and you stay married to them, you see all kinds of ups and downs. And you still love the person and you still keep the company of the person in spite of their ups and downs. Not extreme cases, okay? Regular everyday cases. Um, and that's true sohbah. That's, that's, you know, that's a true kind of companionship. But the one who really is with you all the time and never leaves you in spite of all of your defects and knowing all of your defects is Allah. The only one who's truly like that is Allah. Mawlaq and Kareem, your generous master. Okay. Then he says, so, so that's truly your, uh, your companion. Um, and this is part of the development of relationships, right? This is also part of like, why people who've done things together generally have deeper relationships than people who have not. Like we've been through experiences together, the relationship of people that have been in battle together, the relationship of people who have worked together, people who have traveled together. They've seen things from, they've often been tested in each other's company. And that is a different kind of relationship. I was reading a, a novel recently that one of the brothers, Allah forgive him and elevate him, gifted to me. Uh, it's like 16 or 17 volumes That's why I make dua for his forgiveness Now I've been sucked into 9 of them i finished 9 now But there's this really interesting scene Where this relationship of sisterhood 
is made between these two women. And part of how that relationship is made is that they have to sit with one another and they have to answer certain questions about each other in the presence of other people who can tell if they're lying. And if it's determined that they were lying, then the whole thing is canceled. They can never be sisters. So they have to say, like, what is it that bothers you about this person? What is it that makes you angry about this person? What is it that you love about this person? And then actually they hit each other. One of them has to hit the other one as hard as they can. The other one hits the other one as hard as they can. And then after, afterwards they're like considered to be real sisters, you know. And I think that there's some truth to that. Like a relationship that has all of these things is going to be a relationship that's richer at some level. Then he says, the best uh, one to have as a friend is he who does not seek you out of the sake of something coming from you to him. Allah is your best companion. Allah is not seeking anything from you. He's not in need of you. He's not hoping for something from you. You know, like the Hadith Qudsi or, or, or the Hadith that says that if everyone in creation from the beginning to the end, from the humans to the jinn, went in one plane and asked Allah everything that they ever wanted and he gave them everything that they ever wanted, it wouldn't decrease him in anything. And if all of them came in a plane and all of them were the worst of people and they committed all these sins and they did, it wouldn't decrease him anything. Allah is not, he's, he's not looking for something from you, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course we give him uh, what we give him, you know. Uh, so Allah is the true companion. 136, لَأَشْرَقَ <laughs> Were the light of certitude to shine, you would see the hereafter so near that you could not. Um, I need to move this thing because it's getting in my way now. You could not move toward it, and you would see that the that the eclipse of extinction had come over the beauties of the world. That's an interesting expression. So basically, if, if, if true reality was made clear to you and me, then we would see the hereafter as if it's in front of us. And some Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu has a statement like this, along the lines of like, if the hereafter were brought in front of me and I could touch it, I wouldn't have more yaqeen in it, I wouldn't have more certainty in it than what I already have. Like his certainty is already at that level, that as if he can see it. Allah give us certainty, and if we could, if if we believed in the hereafter like that, it 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 would be so close that we couldn't even move toward it. It'd just be right there, and um, and all of the things of this world would just be eclipsed by that. All of the things of this world would be eclipsed by that. In this context, it brings to mind for me the du'a. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'a wa arina al-baatila baatilan warzuqna ajtinaba Very important dua and beautiful dua Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'a wa arina al-baatila baatilan warzuqna ajtinaba O Allah, show us truth as truth and give us the ability to follow it and show us falsehood as falsehood and give us the ability to stay away from it Very very important dua that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to make 137 This is a mistake You can probably see my cursor This sukun right here is a mistake I don't know that I think uh, the brother who made this he doesn't, write, he doesn't type it out himself He's copying the image you know, And then making it So it's not about the brother who made it It's about the printer Wujudu mawjudin ma'ah إِذْ لَا شَيْءَ مَعَهُ وَلَكِنْ حَجَبَكَ عَنْهُ تَوَهْهُمُ مَوْجُودٍ مَعَهُ It's also very beautiful. It is not the existence of any being alongside of him that veils you from God. For nothing is alongside of him. Rather, what veils you from him is the illusion of a being alongside of him. Hmm? So it's like, get it straight. Okay, get it straight. Is that, it's not that there's something else alongside Allah and that's why we're being veiled from, uh, from God. But it is our illu the illusion that we're under that there's anything other than Him that's the veil between us and God.
just just to be dakiq, you know, just to be precise about it. Lola Dhuhuru Hufin Mukawinati Mawaka Aleha Wujudu Ibsar Walau Dhaharat Sifatuhu Admahalat Idm Sifatuhud Mahalat Mukawinatu Had it not been for his manifestation in created beings, eyesight would not have perceived them. Had his qualities been manifested, his created beings would have disappeared. So how do you even explain this? Uh, so there's this idea that they talk about of a tajalli, a tajalli. It's oftentimes translated as manifestation. Tajalli, manifestation. So it's like emanation. You know that if it wasn't that he, if it had not been for him manifesting himself, not he, not his actual self, but the finite manifestation of his attributes, had that not been the backdrop, so to speak, of the created things, you wouldn't have been able to see any of them in the first place. It's like we've talked about before the idea of light. Tajalliyat has to do with light, you know, emanation. So, you know, you could be in a room and everything is dark and you see nothing there. And you turn the light on and all of a sudden, because the light is on, you see everything. But had the light been on like super, 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 super bright, all of those things would go away too. Right? All of those things would go away too because all you'd be able to see is the light. So had it not been for his manifestation in created beings, eyesight would not have perceived them. Had his qualities been manifested, you know, um, but had they been truly manifested, then created beings would have disappeared entirely. You wouldn't be able to actually recognize anything. Tied to that is Adhara kulli shay'in li annahu al-batin wa tawa wujuda kulli shay'in li annahu al-zahir. Says he manifests everything because he is the interior and he conceals the existence of everything because he is the exterior. These names are really hard to um, work work with in a sense. Like, you know, there's a lot of things you kind of like come to an understanding of them over time. And if you try to force it, it doesn't come. And if you try to think about it too much, it goes away. So it's, it's a very uh, subtle dance. So Allah is al-batin and he is al-zahir. Huwa al-zahir wa al-batin wa huwa bi kulli shay'in basir I think it is the verse. Um that he is the interior and he is the exterior. And wa laysa kamithlihi shay'. There's nothing that's similar to him. Nothing that's remotely similar to him subhanahu wa ta'ala. But um So this says the first half of that previous one is because he is al-batin. And the second half of that previous one is because he is al-zahir. He manifests everything because he is the interior. And he conceals the existence of everything because he is the exterior. If it makes sense, it makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, don't worry about it. Um, there's a nice expression here in the commentary. He says... Uh, لِأَنَّهُ الظَّاهِرُ مِنْ جِهَةِ التَّعْرِيفِ الْبَاطِنُ مِنْ جِهَةِ التَّكْيِيفِ He is the ظاهر, he is the exterior from the perspective, from the angle of knowing him. And he is the interior from the perspective of how everything is possible in the first place. It depends on which angle you're looking at. And it's looking, and it's looking. It depends on which angle you're looking at. Mashi. Uh, Abaha. Well, this is 40. 40 is a good place to stop. Hmm. 
maybe we'll just stop here because I think the next two are gonna kind of go together it's interesting because we had some of those that relate to what people see from you versus your inner reality and the idea of the sitr and then you have these ones that relate to the idea of Allah being a zahir and batin and then right after these you have a couple more about being praised by people and how to understand that and so on so it's kind of like all of these are kind of supposed to be synergizing in a sense as it relates to our understanding percolating and marinating inshallah so let's stop here and um, continue next time from 140 <laughs> إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصلوا بالحق وتواصلوا بالصبر. If anyone has any questions, أهلا وسهلا. ما شاء الله. السلام عليكم to the people on YouTube. I'm just going over there now. I see your salams now. وعليكم السلام. Oh, love you too. Haven't seen you. Ever? Haven't seen anyone. You know, like, there's things actually that we're not supposed to get used to. Like, we're supposed to, it's good to be able to be by oneself and to be, um, to be okay with being alone and stuff like that. But we're not really supposed to, like, get super used to that. Because what happens is then you um, Sometimes you become like It becomes harder to engage with people after that You know um, So Allah help us to weather these To weather these things properly To deal with these things properly And to be attentive to ourselves And balance things out when they become Imbalanced Inshallah Okay Alaikum salam, Faisal. Khair, doesn't look like we have any questions. So we will close here. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from everyone. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu